Miller's Netter, just talking to teachers. Book now available. In this exciting, one-of-a-kind book, Phil Naylor revisits the very best interviews from three years of education podcasting. Miller's Netter, just talking to teachers. Talking to teachers about educational books, why we love them, and how we use them in our classrooms. With guest authors, publishers, podcasters, and of course teachers. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening everybody. Welcome to the latest Nailers Natter episode and it's a huge honour for us on the podcast and I don't say that all the time listeners to, uh, to speak to one of my education heroes. So we're just talking off air um, with Lee Elliott Major which is uh, today's guest and just for context listener so I was involved in the startup for the research schools as you will all know uh, up in Blackpool and Lee's work was pivotal to the, the, the toolkit that we use there and a lot of the work that was involved. And I didn't realize until I spoke to Lee off air that obviously he was involved in the setup of the research school. So it's even more of an honor. And I've kept across his work. I read a lot of his books, but I really pestered him to death to come on the podcast today because of his latest book, which really piqued my interest. So we're going to be talking to Lee about Equity in Education, a practical guide for teachers, which is uh, subtitled Leveling the Playing Field of Learning. And obviously, Lee's authored that alongside Emily Bryant. So, Lee, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for doing this. Thank you very much. It's a real pleasure. And I'm really looking forward to discussing some of the themes in equity in education, because I know these are close to your heart as well. So really looking forward to this. Brilliant. Thank you, Lee. Right. So, I mean, I know a lot of people will be familiar with your work for reasons that I've just outlined in the introduction, but for those that maybe are new to your work, could just give us a brief potted history of your career to this point? So I'm, um, I guess it's important to know that I I dropped out of school uh, effectively when I was 16. Um, So I'm from a a family, a divorced parent's family, working class, I suppose, background, you you class me at West London, uh, lived on my own when I was 16. Um, I mention all this because, of course, it's it's part of, uh, of my personal passion as well as professional passion, um, you know, inf- informs my work. And then I eventually, through teachers actually, got back into school and uh, eventually retook uh, my A-levels in those days and, and then ended up going to university. I ended up doing a PhD in theoretical physics, actually, was my PhD, which is... I don't mention it parties because it, it, it stops conversation dead usually, uh, but a very, I suppose, quant- quantitative research background. Um, I then um, went completely different uh, route uh, in my career and, and I became a journalist, believe it or not, an education journalist. I worked on The Guardian for many years. And then um, I, to cut a very long story short, I eventually then um, went to join a thing called the Sutton Trust, which was a is a charity uh, dedicated to improving social mobility um, and and does a lot of work um, in terms of um, you know get, getting uh, young people to consider university. So we did a lot of really good work there. I eventually became chief exec of the chief, of the Sutton Trust and and was one of the founding trustees of the Education Endowment Foundation. I then about five years ago, age fifty, midlife crisis. I don't know, but I um. I became the country's first professor of social mobility. And we're, we're, we might discuss that term because I think um, you know, what I would say is my the, the real principle of my work is probably more social justice. We, me- we measure things in terms of social, social mobility, measures uh, the, the, the transition from one class to another. It's a sort of 
a way of looking at whether there's a quality of opportunity in, in society. But really, a lot of my work is what I'd call social justice. You know, so my view is your background shouldn't determine what you do in life, whatever that is. So if you become a teacher in your local community, that's a good outcome for me, as well as maybe leaving and going on to become a professor or whatever it is, right? So so we just got to be careful with some of those assumptions and we, we'll, we'll get into that. So I'm, I'm now a um, professor of social mobility. So I, I work with teachers, uh, universities, schools, governments even, and employers. And, and the whole onus of that work is really how, how do we improve the prospects for those from under-resourced backgrounds? Again, we might come back to the language here. Those that might you know, not for whatever reason, have had all the support in their lives so that they can fulfill their their, their talents. Um, so that remains the, the work. And um, yeah, I'm still going strong. Absolutely. Stronger than ever. Stronger than ever. And um, yeah, we will get into those terms because I found that particularly fascinating, you know, uh, around the, the terminology, disadvantaged, working class, etc. And obviously, as somebody who speaks with a, a regional accent and, uh, and you know, grandparents were council houses, etc, etc. These kind of topics are, are very close to my heart as well. So let's get into the book then, Lee, if we may. So we'll start off with um, this question. So are schools in 2023 facing almost Dickensian challenges? Uh, I recently reread Hard Times, as I bang on about quite a lot. And can education counter these ever-widening societal divides? So in the book, we do talk about the fact that it feels like, in many ways, that we are going back to Dickensian times in the sense that you know, many children now turn up to school um, cold, hungry, without sleep, all those uh, things perhaps that we thought were sort of basic entitlements in previous generations and in my view have been eroded. I would add to that basic healthcare, you know, doing check, checking whether your teeth are okay and, and doing eyesight checks, all these things that... Um, I think in pre certainly when I was growing up, I felt that we were getting into a point where those things were universal in terms of entitlement. I think that's gone and it's gone back a long way. And in, in some measures, I think we are now facing um, Dickensian levels of inequality. Um, I think all this is important. And in the book, I'd write this about this a lot in that in the last 40 or 50 years, politicians have embraced almost what we call neoliberalism, right? It's sort of cap modern capitalism. And the basic tenets of that, I think, are flawed. And that is that you can have increasing inequalities in, in society um, as long as everyone has a fair chance to make it on in life. And it's basically down to schools to ensure that that happens, right? I think that is a flawed approach. And um, what... Uh, what 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 is unraveling really in society is that inequalities are in, increasing, and um, those who who happen to be born in in places and in, in in homes that just don't have the resources to compete are being further left behind. So I think um, I, I really worry about some of the assumptions in modern day schools policies, and we might get into this around things like often inspections, performance tables. Because inherent to all those policies is the assumption that schools can do all, that can solve all society's ills. And I just don't think that's fair. And I don't think the evidence bears up bears up to that as well. So, yes, we are in Dickensian times. 
and it's very worrying i think for teachers actually yeah agreed and this is why it's such a well-researched book listener because you know lee is absolutely speaking with experience of the front line and then the issues that people that are working in these contexts are absolutely facing and the examples that you give there you know eye care dental care you know i can give examples and perhaps i, I better be careful in terms of referencing which schools these come from but let's just say from conversations that i've had where you know children are routinely turning up with headaches and pain and then pulling out their own teeth because they haven't got access to dental care. They don't know how to even access a GP. They're not on the register for a GP at all. And these are the things that schools in those contexts are having to deal with before they can even consider, you know, teaching a broad and balanced curriculum, which is perhaps something else we'll get into. But just picking up, Lee, on what you said there, that this kind of approach, um, you know, particularly in times of austerity and, you know, everything that's happened in the last 15, 16 years, there's a prevailing culture that schools can do everything leading to some schools, particularly schools that, you know, I've labelled as harder schools in uh, the next book that I'm writing, shameless plug listener for second book. Um, but, you know, they, they do feel inadequate in the face of these uh, inequalities. And there's no recognition either, as you said, um, through the inspection culture. So, you know, what, what kind of, sorry, how damaging is that assumption that schools can do everything? I think it's deeply damaging. I, I mean, because I actually, it actually is not good for for the, the the young people and children that we serve. Um, I think we need to rethink uh, of what the curriculum is for young people. Um, I know I, I think progress A is not appropriate for all pupils. I think I, I would I would look at having English and maths and maybe three other subjects, some of which probably could be vocational for many young people. I think a lot of the um, absence crisis that we're facing is down to the fact that um, you, lots of young people and families don't see uh, education as a way of um, progressing in life. And that's partly because we've got a very rigid uh, system at the moment. And I, I think we need to rethink those things. This is heresy, by the way, if, if you know you were talking to current government ministers um they won't compromise on these things so i think there's some really fundamental issues um in terms of the ch uh, of what we what we serve children but also for teachers i think teachers are under so much pressure now so much i mean i know they always have been but it feels like it's going to another level now and that's because we have a society and in the book we write a lot about this is that it's both culturally and material materially very divided right and so, you know, maybe 50 years ago, a state comprehensive school, as it was called then, could just about cater to all the needs in its local community, diverse as they were. Now, there are so much extremes in society. I think it's really difficult now for a, a comprehensive school uh, to cater for all those needs. So we need a national debate about this. Either we give schools more resource to do this or we give them a fairer accountability system that says, okay, we want you to contribute and do your best on this, but we're not going to expect you to solve everything, right? Um, the problem across the country I'm finding is that schools are picking up the pieces and because because everywhere else is fracturing, right? If you look at the health service, social services, um, welfare, all these things, and I hate I hate to depress everyone, but I do think there is a crisis out there, and it's often the schools that are picking up the pieces. So um, I do worry about teacher retention, recruitment, as well as um, the future for our children. I, I think these are big stakes, and you know, 
you know, in, in social mobility studies, there are several classic texts, as well as mine, that predict a basically unraveling of society in about 2034, I think the date is, right? Um, the reason they predict that is that if you have successive generations where there hasn't been equality of opportunity for people, and particularly in particular areas of the country as well, the southwest as well as the north, you know, uh, there are lots of areas where now there has been several generations who have not had good jobs, fair opportunities. So it kind of eventually unravels because people ultimately uh, will we'll, we'll, we'll say, well, well, we've had enough, right? We've had enough. And I, I think you're already starting to see that a little bit. So, um, wow, big stuff, isn't it? But yeah, I, I, would, I would go as big as that to say that society itself will unravel unless we change the ways that we're approaching these things. Yeah, and I mean, we're not saying that to depress people. And I think that the book is really positive, isn't it, in painting a picture of what kind of things that you propose. And it was really exciting for me to read that. And we are going to talk in a second about equity. But I think, again, you know, it's a very challenging context for schools to recruit teachers in where, you know, there are teachers that will be attracted to a more pastoral approach and a slightly different curriculum model for schools and, and students in disadvantaged communities. But to then to have to fit with a context of, you know, um, knowledge-rich curriculum, broad and balanced curriculum, high-stakes accountability. So come in, do all the pastoral work, do the social care work for the community. P.S., you're also going to be paid pittance and told you're inadequate by somebody who comes in for two days uh, and then sails off. It's not very attractive, is it, you know, as a, as a model? And that's why people don't want to do it. It isn't. And, and you know, I speak, uh, I'm, a, I'm very privileged to, to, to do the thing that I want to do with my life, right? This is my, it's, you know, I'm going to be, I'm going to be talking about this till the day I die, right? You know, I, I do present in other countries. And, and what's really interesting to me is like, I spoke in Norway to head teachers um, last month. They face similar challenges, right? Even though it's a more um, egalitarian society in many ways, Um even with that extra money, I think, they, I think it's something like twice the amount of money they get um, in schools that, that we do per per head. Um, they are still facing the same cultural divides, material divides that I'm going to talk to you about, um, and they are and they are much better paid, right? So, um, so yeah, I think these are these are universal issues, but I think the UK and England specifically are particularly bad in the way that we support teachers. Yeah, absolutely agreed. Right, let's get into, so we've got definitions of some things that, you know, I have been known to get wrong um, over the years, Lee. So I also had a conversation with Michael Young, but not the Michael Young that we're going to be talking about in a minute, the, the other uh, Michael Young, um, about social justice and social mobility. Um, and also, if you could give us a, a definition of social mobility and social justice, but also there's a brilliant explanation. I've got the book here uh, and a model and a diagram of equity, not equality. So if you can just unpick those four things, Lee, for the listeners. So when we study social mobility, we look at the origins of people, where, where they come from as, as children, and then where they get to as adults, okay? So you can measure this in different ways. Some studies look at social class, which is basically based on the occupations of the parents, and then and looks at what you get as an occupation when you're about age 37 is, is, one, is the age we use. And you look at the differences. To, to what extent did that adult uh, go on to do something different to their parents? And, and the reason people are interested in that is that 
um, the the ideal, I suppose, is that the your background shouldn't determine what you end up doing in life. So, a more mobile society, a, mo- a society where the class origins aren't always the same as the class destinations of someone, right, is a more healthy society because it suggests that there is more equality of opportunity, and it's not all down to you know who you who you come from. Um, social justice is, is is a different term and. It, it really is is um, about fairness, I suppose, in that, that everyone should have a fair chance in life. And, you know, my work, even though I study social mobility, so that's what we study because that you can get data on generations of people to sort of see where, whether there has been less or mo- more mobility or who is mobile. And by the way, the, the, the least mobile people in, the, in, in many ways are the very top, the very elites, because they all stay at the top. So if you look at, you know, one of the, facts I always present in my lectures is, you know, how many universities have produced uh, English prime ministers since the war, right? Um, it's a trick question because Gordon Brown Scottish went to Edinburgh University and some prime ministers didn't go to university. But of those that did, they all come from one university, University of Oxford, right? And uh, this is just highlighting the lack of diversity at the very top of British society. It's a particular thing in Britain uh, compared to other countries. And that is really unhealthy because then you have people who come from a very small slice of society who don't really understand uh, the problems that are facing many people from normal backgrounds, let alone under-resourced backgrounds. So social justice is a broader term, really, um, for almost fairness, that everyone has a fair chance, whereas social mobility comes from a very it's from an academic term originally, but it's a more associated with that concept of equality of opportunity. Um Really, all this stuff is is you know when you look into the studies and, and my work, really what we're arguing for is more more equality in society because you know if 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 that people were better paid broadly, then you wouldn't be scared of downward mobility. I always say to people, you know, because everyone thinks it's all about upward mobility. Actually, in a healthy society, you would have downward as well as upward mobility. But because um, in this idyllic world wages wouldn't be so differential it that wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing right but the problem we have at the moment is a very unequal world and, and a lack of social mobility right so um that that's the worst of all all worlds in many ways now in the book we talk about equity now equity is about doing more for uh, young people from under-resourced backgrounds not doing the same for them. So equality in, in education circles would be, you know, spending as much time on each child in the class, right? All those, all those say, 30 children, you'd, you'd spend or try to spend as much time with all of them. Equity, in the argument we set out in the book, is saying, no, um, there are some children who have much more support outside of school than others. We think there's a moral case um, to actually spend more time on those young people who come from under-resourced backgrounds or, or, or disadvantaged backgrounds, however you want to term it. So, so these these are important terms, right, in this debate. And um, yeah, we're very careful in our language in that, but we might come back to that terminology on you know under-resourced versus disadvantaged as well, because that's something we look at. We look at things like you know we talk about parent partnerships rather than parent engagement. Um, a lot of the book, we're trying to challenge this deficit approach that is that dogs education in many ways, where we are implicitly 
devaluing people if they happen to come from working class background or if they happen to have an accent or if they speak in a certain way, um, et cetera, et cetera. You know, our view of the world is that talent comes in all forms, right? And 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 all from all places. But we live in a world that superimposes a particular value on people that come from certain backgrounds, and we really try and challenge that. Sorry, that's a hugely long answer, but but uh, but that's that's what the kind of book's all about. It's a brilliant answer, and you know, I'm sure that listeners have have heard me go on about this before. You know, I, I'm, I've got a regional accent, as I've alluded to many times on the podcast. I wasn't allowed to do the tan oily um, at the parents' evening in the middle-class school in which I worked because uh, they, they didn't think it was creating the right impression. Um, I also suffered from the lazy uh, generalizations of a previous deputy head teacher who, when I was head of year 11 in a high-achieving all-girls school, um, finished an assembly with, now then, girls, you know, if you don't work hard on your exams, you're going to end up somewhere dreadful like the University of Central Lancashire. And I was like, well, excuse me, but, you know, I happen to, to go there for economic reasons, which, you know, you, you're talking about there, aren't you, in terms of that social mobility. And I do like, I think I've got this right. You won't pick some case studies there that social mobility might be for other reasons in terms of people might decide that actually pursuing a high-flying, you know, uh, corporate lifestyle might not be what they want. They might do something this involves, you know, working in a, a garden centre, whatever it is, but then, you know, they've got more work-life balance, spend more time with their own kids, that sort of thing. So it's not always about, you know, social uh, mobility to the top for economic reasons. There can be work-life balance, health reasons, all sorts of other reasons for that as well. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's a term, to be honest with you. I'm not, and, and I did think about it when I became a professor. Should I use that? Term? I mean, the technical term social mobility could be mobility within the same class group, right? So, you know, you could do a job that's in the same class group and, and you would still be mobile. I, I think the political debates have thought of social mobility as, as effectively upward social mobility. You know, it's that sort of associated with the Blair, I suppose, years where, you know, this very aspirational notion of it, well-intended, but the implication of all that stuff is that there are losers and winners, right? And so whenever you, I mean, I, mean, I watch all, you know, I don't watch them. Really. I, I see these TV shows on, on you know, The Apprentice, the uh, even the celebrity jungle thing. Yeah, there's always the winner, isn't there? There's the, and I know it's a bit of fun sometimes, but implicitly it's all suggesting that there is one race and that there is the winner and the rest of us are losers. I, I do a story when I do my lectures about the fact that I was a bin man for a time and the Daily Mail uh, did a story on me from bin man to professor. The truth is my mum worked for the local council. It was nepotism. She got me that job in the summer when I was doing a PhD. But also I was proud to be a bin man. I still go up to bin men this day. There are some amazing people who are bin men, by the way, street cleaners. And I think we look down at those people. We should probably pay them more. Um, I mean, I use that as an extreme case, right? But we should value people that do jobs for the betterment of society. I'd add nurses to that, teachers. We don't pay them enough. We don't value them enough. And what was really upsetting for me was that, you know, during the pandemic, my partner happens to be a nurse, that we, we, we were doing that clapping outside the front doors and all that stuff. Of course, it soon went. As soon as the pandemic went, we've gone straight back to the all those assumptions and values that we have in society. And I don't think the majority of us agree with these things. I think we're kind of trapped in these sort of, you know, the, the, these things that and all the people in. The, by the way, all the people in the media are all from 
very particular backgrounds as well. So we're we're sort of dominated, in my view, by this privileged elite, really. And I think the majority don't necessarily agree with all those things, uh, but they're the ones in power, I'm afraid. God, I sound quite revolutionary now, don't I? But yeah, I, I really feel that these things are really fundamentally important to the way that we live our lives. Yeah, absolutely agree. And, uh, you know, in terms of the, the chapter on parents, I found really fascinating and really practical because I think that's another thing that the post-pandemic, if you can use that phrase, that schools have kind of got out of the habit of engaging with parents in the way that perhaps we naturally did before because, you know, video conferencing, parents' evenings online, that sort of thing. We've kind of got away from engaging with parents. And, you know, another practical uh, kind of example for you, Lee, I know, I know of a school where – um, they recently slipped into uh, an Ofsted category and the school offered the opportunity for parents to come in to discuss, you know, what was going to be happening as a result of this Ofsted category. Uh, do you know how many people turned up, listener? Yes, two people. But then the following evening, there was a parents' evening for the Year 7 intake. 89% of parents turned up to, to find out about their child's progress. So it shows that parents can be engaged, are engaged with their children's, you know, uh, work at school but they're perhaps not too bothered at these sort of bigger um, sort of national policies and procedures. You know, it's kind of kind of ignoring those now. It doesn't seem to be important to people's daily lives as much as perhaps those people who are making the decisions think that they are. Anyway, I don't want to get on political uh, rants anyway, Lee, but let's get, let's get back to equity-based education. So in the book, you outline four core principles. So do you mind sharing those four core principles of equity-based education with our listeners? So equity, not equality, the idea that we should devote more time and resources to those children from under-resourced backgrounds. Um, and that term, by the way, so, so, you know, all my professional life, I've used that term disadvantaged pupil. Uh, when we thought through this, we, we, we thought, well, one, actually disadvantages a continuum anyway. It's not like there is a binary divide where there is the, I mean, classically, we think of this in pupil premium, don't we? Pupil premium children, the non-pupil premium. That the reality is disadvantage is a continuum in every classroom, advantage, disadvantage. Um, so it, 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 it makes us think it's a binary when it's not. Um, it also is the case um, that, that um, you know, young people don't want to be called disadvantaged people. You know, we, I did some really interesting sessions with some sixth formers about this and, um, and they, they, didn't, um, they didn't want to be called that, right? Um, and then the other thing is if it... it, it means that we, we, we start implicitly, unconsciously um, labelling those young people in some ways. We, we, there's all sorts of research around, you know, how we, um, uh, unconscious bias, really, you know, how, how you start judging per, someone, not as an individual, but as part of that, uh, that group, right? And, and so, anyway, we've used that term under res, uh, child from under-resourced background instead of disadvantaged pupils. I think you can use disadvantaged people if you're doing a study that's doing it over a pop big population and you define that very clearly. But at a classroom level, I worry that if we're using that language, we fall into those, those traps. So anyway, equity, not equality. Capacity, not deficit mindset. I think mindset is the right word here. Um, and capacity mindset is about reflecting on our own, own cultural norms in our schools. Do what you know? Do the way that we. The th so a lot, a lot of schools say to me, Lee, we'd love to diversify our governors, right? To, to so they're representative of the local community. And I always say, okay, have you thought about how governor meetings work? Because I tell you, having been doing, I've done, I've been a governor for what forty years or something. I've been various governor and trustee roles. 
I know how they work. I know how to wing it so that I don't have to read every single paper. Um, I know when to sort of what battles to sort of try and uh, win and what ones you just let go. Um, they're very stuffy meetings, to be honest with you. They're very middle class administrative meetings. If you want to change the makeup of your governors, You've got to change the way you do governing meetings, right? We, 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 you know, we we think um, that we want to change the world, but we're not willing to change what we do, and and so so that's what I mean by deficit deficit mindset. And I think we we need to think of a capacity mindset, and that's to genuinely, genuinely believe that there are strengths and beauties and many good things from working class cultures, right? So that in all the debates. That I find about working class versus middle class cultures, implicitly there is a judgment about those working class people. That's partly because of all the debates in the media are all done by people from certain backgrounds, right? So, um, listen, I could talk to you all day about that stuff. Um, capacity, not deficit mindset. And then the other two really important ones um, is... Uh, treating uh, children, and this, of course, is an ideal, and I do understand teachers are under so much pressure, time pressures, but treating every um, pupil in the class as a unique uh, uh, learner with a unique set of histories and characteristics. The reason we say that is because, again, it's just trying to avoid some of those stereotypes and labels that can be so damaging uh, in terms of expectations for pupils. The reality is we are all unique, right? And of course, what you'd want ideally in a classroom is individualized feedback for each of those children. It's almost impossible to do the time that we have, right? And then finally, uh, number four is is cherishing um, human talents in their fullest sense. What do I mean by that? It's not just about um, something that I do very well, which is being able to memorize things in, a, in an exam, right? That, that, that has some, obviously, uh, talent associated with that. But there's so much more to human potential. There's, there's you know, social emotional skills. There's artistic, artistic creativity, sporting prowess, you, you name it. You'll all know this. Um, the problem with our current system is it's, it, it rewards only one talent among many. And I think that is destructive as well for many young people because I don't think everyone is academic. You know, I, I think that we want all our children to have the basics in things like English and maths, absolutely. But we don't want everyone doing, in my view, the Progress 8 curriculum um, for, for all its good intentions, I just I just don't think that's right. Um, now, some people would find that, yeah, would challenge that, but I I just don't think the system's working as a result. So, so those are the four important principles in the book we 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 talk about. Brilliant, and that capacity, not deficit thinking, and and talking about um, making sure you're careful with language around disadvantage for listeners. There's a really good um, session that Lee did with Catherine Burblesing, which uh, I can put a signpost to. Uh, where you kind of discuss a lot of that, don't you, in your in your other roles. That's really, really worth checking out, listeners, if you get a chance to have a look at that. Right, just picking up on one of those points, Lee, which is about this idea of meritocracy. Um, and obviously reading your book, and then I went back to and had a look at uh, the Michael Young work, which you were referencing there in terms of meritocracy. So do you feel as if we're still locked in that sort of, and you mentioned Tony Blair earlier, but his kind of definition of meritocracy, which was a, a misguided definition, where it's academic values that the only value and we're not um, obviously valuing other talents, like you said in, in your point four about multiple, not singular talents. And you've obviously sort of talked there about how we can expand that and not just judge schools on 
academic standards and progress eight. So how do we practically go about countering that and changing that? It's particularly when, you know, the uh, external scrutiny is so great on schools that might want to challenge that. So um, Michael Young uh, was was a great man in many ways. I obviously never met him. That The book, The Rise of the Meritocracy, was published in 1958 by Penguin. It, it's interesting because I published a book called Social Mobility and Its Enemies about five years ago, which was also, I'm very proud to have published it on, in the Pelican series. So that it's in the same series, you could say. Um, but the 58... Uh, book it is apocryphal. It, 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 it is an amazing book, and it and it coins this term meritocracy. What Michael Young was really arguing was that the uh, essentially those in charge, let's call them the upper middle classes here, um, would create a system that they could win, basically, right? So if you define, so so when we talk about meritocracy, it's it's really the devil's in the detail. How do you define what we mean by merit? Okay. And what has happened is really what what, what um, Michael Young had, had predicted is that um, w- they would use a very narrow definition of merit, i.e. how well you do academically, right? Um, and in a way that is eminently gameable, right? So if you've got money, you can do lots of private tutoring, right? So I would argue you know, A-level results are as much a signal of how much support young people have as any notion of academic potential, right? So they're, they're, they're very noisy signals, in my view, of, of academic um, potential, however you, you want to define that. Um, so it's really important to know that that, that rise of metric was a critique, really. It was a, it was a prediction of a dystopian future in which the elites would just replicate themselves in a much more powerful way than previous elites because they could say, look, we've got the Oxbridge degrees. We justify these positions of power. And, you know, I see this in the politics of today. You know, I have seen so many leaders now that have these credentials who, to be quite frank, are not fit to uh, serve office in many ways. So, um, so that that has come to pass, really. And and what's ironic, and I think he would be um, wrestling in his grave if he could see that the, the politicians all use that term, meritocracy, and of course social mobility as well. These terms, um, you know, it, it is ironic. It's a bitter irony in many ways. Um, but they've created a system that essentially replicates the same social elites uh, in a rigged game, I would say. And yet the. They have the effrontery to use the terms that um, were used to sort of critique themselves. So um, what can we do? I do think we need a debate about the fundamentals in school in school systems. So I would have a rebalanced Ofsted framework inspection regime where you do give a school more credit if it is serving a really challenged community. I mean, you know, I can't tell you enough how many times studies have shown that most of the variation in outcomes of children lies from outside the school gates. Depends what assumptions you make, but whatever study you look at, you cannot deny that truth. And yet, when we look at Ofsted inspections or performance tables, that is basically ignored. We ignore your context. Now, what I what I totally understand is you don't want to go t- towards the other extreme, the low bigotry you know, of, of low expectations or what, whatever, what have you, but to absolutely ignore poverty as if it didn't exist, seems to me a bizarre and damaging uh, policy that we have at the moment. So if you look at 
tra- teacher training, not much uh, mention of disadvantage uh, in the training frameworks for teachers. If you look at Ofsted, um, not much consideration of, of whether a school is is serving a, a challenged community. Um, and finally, we measure schools on that very narrow notion of, of talent, academic ability, you know, ability to do well in, in those exams. I did do an, an international search as part of the book to see what other countries are doing. We're essentially behind the curve on all this. So many countries, including some of the Asian countries, which are known for their sort of you know high academic results, are all looking at much more pluralistic, much more... Um, uh, diverse ways of measuring human potential. Um, Because what we know in all the studies is that lives aren't just about academic uh, ability, right? (laughs) They're much more than that. So I think we are behind the curve. So, you know, whoever gets into government next, I do think we need a rethink. This this is as fundamental as looking at things like the curriculum, how we assess uh, schools. And I would add to that, by the way, well-being as well. I'm not an expert on well-being, but some countries like the Netherlands now do measure schools in terms of the, the student well-being and staff well-being as well. Um, so there's much more to it, right, than the current system. And I think in years to come, we will look back on this period as a really extreme time, right? A, a time that was um, very um, damaging in many ways, I think. Absolutely. Okay, so get into the next chapter. If that's right, you're right for time. Sorry, Liam. Get taking. Yeah, to be honest, I, I, my my answers are so long, Bill. I'm so sorry, but yeah, about six, I'll have to go. Maybe five past six, I can stretch. No, it to. that's that's fine. I've only got a couple more. Um, so it turns as the dream of schools as great social levelers. I'm sure you've read a book. Um, that's one of my personal favourites. So this is Education and the Working Class. Have you read that one? Um, yeah. by um, Brian Jackson, which I, which I read. <laughs> I don't know if I put this in the podcast. I read this when I was wrestling with the decision of whether I should send my child to grammar school or not. <laughs> I was really thinking very carefully about what kind of impact that might have. But that kind of unpicked that idea of the old school model of comprehensive grammar school, but this idea as schools as, you know, being able to, you know, increase social mobility, social justice, that school levels. So your, your model of equity, you know, where do you see schools in terms of those equity engines what do you think that schools can be doing there so, so i you know i i think again and this comes back to how we should measure schools as well you know i think children in every school will will have a mix of um talents and they will go on to do many amazing different things in their lives right um i i think it's, it's dangerous to think of schools as social mobility engines i think because so much is about what happens outside the schools anyway. Mm. Uh, but I think the owner should be much more on, let's give everyone the basics, right? So that everyone leaves school with, and I, and I would add English and maths to that, actually. I think you could have a debate about what else we would we would add to that. So, so that everyone goes out able to read, digest, add up so that they, they can look at the bills when, you know, at the end of the week or whatever it is, they can read a timetable. They could do the, what I'd call functional skills, right? And I think over and above that, um, of course, then there'll be more academic ones that might go to the university route. There might be other... I think we should measure scores on that on those basics in many ways, more than um, a- any additional stuff should be almost secondary. And that's what I suppose I mean by 
engines of equity is we disproportionately work for those young people who haven't got support outside the school gates. And to be honest, and I, you know, I, I was I was from work class, but I was very academic. So I was, you know, I was like, the, you know, the teachers could just give me something and I would fly with it, right? You know, uh, which, which of course, the teachers loved because you're getting this instant feedback from someone, right? And, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I love that book, you know, and, um, uh, and it's sort of, it's lovely. But I think someone like me, you can give a little nudge and we will, we will probably do okay. <laughs> I would personally focus on those young people that need to get those basics, right? That would be my number one priority. And I think it's really tough, this, because we only have so much time, right? So you have to make these choices. My choice would be, for equity, would be, uh, and for social justice, I use that term, I would I would focus most of my resources on that. Now, now of course, that's difficult because you've got parents wanting this and that and and the current way schools and measures is almost impossible to do this. But I don't think it's beyond the wit of our education system to get every child um, to have equivalent of, of, of a grade four in English and maths at the end of um, you know secondary education. So, so that's what I would focus on. Brilliant. And I mean, you put some really good practical things in there that I was personally thinking about because we're, believe it or not, Lee, we're already looking at timetables for next year because, you know, you get to that kind of time we're thinking about. I was thinking of one of the challenges that you've put in there is around, you know, your more experienced um, teachers, perhaps looking at which classes they're going to take to be able to spend more time with the students that need that, that, that maybe don't buy into that, if that's the right phrase, that education arms race. They haven't got that tutor at home. They haven't got those parents that can necessarily sit down and go through the homework with them. They need the strongest teachers with the lightest timetable to be able to then, you know, provide them with that time to then give them that chance for equity. So, I mean, that's already having a practical uh, um, kind of impact. And I think that schools that have been bitten by Ofsted are just quite keen to now, rather than try and, you know, play to their tune, actually go the other way and just mm. think, well, you know, we've already been labelled. We might as well do things our own way. There's mm. no real point trying to, you're never going to meet their criteria. We yeah. need something else. And with attendance rates, you know, as you said before, falling, we, we've, we've kind mm. of said, we've said to students that, you know, 30% of your, or whatever it is, you're not going to pass anyway because of the way that exams are, are kind of marked. Yeah, we've also said today that that school can't be that important for the factual knowledge that you require because you know they weren't fully open for that time. So why do we necessarily need to have it? We, there is there is definitely time for a massive rethink around how schools are kind of inspected, but also what kind of things they deliver as well. Yeah, I have these bizarre conversations now as someone who works with schools a lot around the country and and increasingly abroad as well. Well, you kind of have this conversation. Okay, what what. What, how are we going to deal with the Ofsted and the accountability? So there's there's one game we've got to play there, right? And some schools are better at playing the game than others. And then how are we actually going to help our children? What's good for... So you have these almost parallel discussions going on. And I mean, I just find that that is that really says something, doesn't it? It, it, it needs to be lined up. And I, and I hate to get conspiratorial with all this, but the people that are in charge all come from particular backgrounds, you know, and, and I think a lot of them do not understand uh, the perspectives of people uh, from different cultural backgrounds. If you just, just think about those in charge, I'm not going to name any names. I've meet, I meet them all, as you could expect over the years with all the policy debates I'm involved. And I'm like thinking, can't we get a few more people that are actually understanding from different parts of the country 
and, and different cultural backgrounds because that is the population that we're meant to be serving. And yet we have those in charge who come from a very small slice of society. And so you make all these assumptions, right? I suppose Michael Gove would be the classic of that, you know, um, in that he's that sort of scholar, classic scholarship boy, isn't he? He's sort of obviously very bright and got a scholarship into a private school. And, and his notion of education is a very particular type, isn't it? It's a very middle class. And I think it's well intended. I do. I do think that he genuinely thought that making the curriculum even much more detailed, making exams harder, you know, all these things would help. I just don't think it's worked. I, th- I think 10 years of Govian um, policies have not worked. And let's see what happens in the next government, because I do think we need a fundamental rethink. Absolutely. And just on that theme, Lee, and it's last couple of questions, if that's all right. So um, you, you talk about the sort of teachers and their mindsets, because predominantly teachers, and this is something that I unpicked when I was sort of researching the first book that I did, is that I realized very quickly that I don't have any friends who are teachers apart from the colleagues that I work with. I haven't not related to any teachers. Um, I don't come from a dynasty of teachers and I'm in the minority because I think that pretty much everybody that, and I know that's a ridiculous generalization, particularly for someone who's involved in education research, you know, my own perception, but lots of people seem to have come from a dynasty of teachers. And does, do you think that affects teachers mindsets because they're predominantly middle-class mindsets and they find it more difficult to empathize with certain types of students and are more likely to what's the right word for this they're more likely to recognize achievement in certain types of students um and and how do we and you put it in the book how do we go about developing that equity mindset for teachers i think mindset is so crucial on this and and i think that's absolutely right if you look at all the studies they suggest that um teachers either come from middle class backgrounds and often with teachers in the family as well so so you know we all suffer from unconscious bias so 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 um, you're just less likely the studies suggest interact with people from different backgrounds so dylan um uh, william gave me some nice quotes in this and it was a very nice endorsement of our book you know um, and he said one of the hardest things a teacher does is teach someone not like them and i thought that was really telling you know and I think it's one of these things that is hard to admit and reflect on because most teachers are middle class. And by definition, even those like you and me, who is a professor of teacher of sorts, who were working class, we've become middle class by definition, right? These you know, teachers and professors are by definition middle class uh, jobs, even though particularly for teachers, they're not paid as much as they should be, right? Um, so we do have a very middle class profession, um, and I think we do need to do far more to reflect on that because I think we fall into all sorts of assumptions uh, because of that. And, and one of the things I want to do over the next year, because um, it's lovely speaking to you about some of the principles and, so, and, I, and we have tried to put some practical things in that book. But what, what I'm doing with teachers through doing talks is saying, to them, OK, let's come up with some toolkits for teachers so that in the classroom, here are five things that you could do, right, or reflect on as a middle leader, as a, as a, as a senior leader, as a trust leader. What are the sort of toolkits, if you like? Because I do think we need that. But ultimately, it has to be about your values, right? And, and I know, you know, listen, 
if I want to help a, a child from an under-resourced background, I'm going to turn to a teacher first. I mean, you know, they are the ones that we rely on, right? They are the ones that I know are dedicated to this. Um, but I do think you need to really believe this in the core and core of your heart that all children can achieve. And I know that sounds like, you know, oh, a bit of a cliche, but... But the research suggests that that is not played out in the classroom, that middle-class teachers tend to interact less with working-class pupils, less eye contact, less warmth, and they fall into stereotypes and labelling. I'm, I'm sorry, but that is the case. I hesitate with all this because what I don't want teachers to feel like is they're being to blame. I think these are just human traits that we need to reflect on. And you have to put into context that schools are sitting in very unequal societies, right? So even if you did all the things I'm saying, I still think you'd want to debate about inequalities outside the school gates. And then you get into wealth divides, taxation, uh, regional, um, uh, you know, getting jobs into different parts of the country. I mean, you're, you're, you know, you're in the Blackpool part of the country. If, we, if you're serious about social mobility, you have to get into the redistribution of jobs around the country. It just has, you know, you can't do it any other way. So there's all sorts of bigger debates outside schools. But for me, the one thing we could do is reflect on some of these biases and barriers. And I think we would do much better in terms of those uh, achievement gaps if, 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 if we did that. Yeah, and I think that's what the book does well, Lee, because you've struck a nice balance between you're getting people motivated to think about these particular issues. So I immediately went for the book. As soon as I saw that it had come out, I thought, this is something that I want to read. And, you know, I went through it so quickly because there's so much to enthuse me and to make me think and to reflect on my current practice. But also, like you said, and I always like to leave the listener wanting more, Lee, because I want them to go out and buy it, don't we? don't want to give them everything. So there's very practical tips around what kind of things you can do. So around developing authentic relationships, nurturing all talents, you know, developing authentic relationships like i said working with parents there's lots of practical chapters in there but we want you to go on the way and get this but there's also that kind of call to arms there isn't there if we need to do something about this which is very much what kind of enthuse and engage me right last question if we can speaking of enthusing and engagedly like i said earlier you know think schools have got away from engaging with parents for whatever reason so how important is parental relationships Oh, sorry, how important are parental relationships? And I'm particularly thinking around secondary schools here because I think primary schools stereotypically do this very well, don't they? The classic school gate kind of conversations. Um, and why are those relationships important? So early years, practitioners and primary schools do it better on average, no doubt about it. Parent partnerships, that's partly because they're smaller and, and there is more natural interaction with parents or carers. It is so crucial. I can't tell you enough how crucial this is. All the research suggests the home learning environment is is as important as the classroom in many ways. So um, a lot of the project, practical projects I'm involved in, we've got this lovely project at Exeter that I think every university should do where you've got undergraduates doing some very basic focused tutoring on helping. Um, this is um, year 11, eight, year eight, um, uh, so, so sort of 12 year olds writing basic sentences because a lot of the head teachers were saying to us post-pandemic there were still issues around basic reading and writing at early secondary school and we we developed a course with a head teacher so that undergraduates could do it in a very focused way complementing the, the, the undergrads get a credit for this towards their degree 
um, and it complements what the the teachers do. I, I just I just mention all that because. Um, it's really important because the parents also knew about that. And so we had to present this to parents as a positive thing, right? You've got to do it. And, and I know all of you all sort of know this, but it's so hard to do. You've got to do it in an authentic way that creates um, proper relationships. So when you walk into a school, you can honestly, you can feel it straight away. This is not about authority and, and, and encroaching on, on authority, which I think schools and teachers do have. It's about doing it in a way that is respectful of those parents as well. So much of, of um, the, the, the stuff that I see can be very transactional. And I can tell you as a parent as well that this happens a lot, um, that you're just seen as a number, essentially. you know, you're, you're, And that happens at secondary school, no doubt about it. So in the book, we sort of explore this and we talk about how can you develop authentic relations there's lots of tricks out there as always the secrets are within the system there are schools that have parent champions or advocates where the parent themselves almost becomes an advocate for the school goes into that local community or that estate finds out why the children aren't coming to school and tells them you know what the school is trying to do. so you have a bridge between the community and the school i think that can be very powerful I think we should look at parent-teacher meetings, completely redo them. I think that should be about helping parents think about how they support their kids by listening to them read in, in the class, in, in the home environment, for, for, for example. Um, at primary school, I probably wouldn't have homework. I probably would have instead very well-structured, thought-through activities of, of getting parents to think to sit with their children. I know a lot of parents are in precarious positions in all sorts of jobs, but I think you can do a little bit every day. Um, so I think this is so fundamental, so fundamental, Phil. But, I, but you know, we, we gave a few bits of ta- a taste of that in the book. But, you know, I would almost say that's as, 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 as important as the classroom stuff I was talking about. You know, so reflecting on your biases in the classroom and your language, um, and making things more explicit in the classroom so that all children understand the rules of the game, I think is important. Equally important is how do you partner with those those communities and, and families. There are some schools doing brilliant jobs on this, and um, I've seen some, they do have extra resource to do this, but I've seen some schools in London do what they call deep listening exercises, where you literally go out to the community and you ask them what their priorities are. You find out all such amazing things about that local community, by the way. They come with loads of cultural, their own cultural capital. It might not be middle-class cultural capital, but it is cultural capital of other thoughts. So, so really important. I can't emphasize that enough. I think it does take time, but I think I think there are some some real nice strategies that other schools have tried already that I think are worth considering. Definitely. Right. Thank you so much, Lee, for your time tonight. Just a reminder for the listeners. So we've been talking about equity in education, a practical guide for teachers leveling the playing field of learning. And obviously Lee has authored this with Emily Bryant. So Lee, it's been a great honor to have you on tonight. Really appreciate your time. Could you just let listeners know where the book is available, where they can find out more information about perhaps any talks or events that you're doing and just a signpost to your website or to your Twitter or whatever social media you've got. So um, I am on Twitter, or do you call it X these days? So I don't know. But I, 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 most, to be honest, my, if you want to contact me, LinkedIn I'm on, and I, get, I, I find I'm getting far more sort of deep, constructive discussions on LinkedIn than 
um, X or Twitter these days. Um, so you can find me there. The book is on is available on all good online bookstores. You know, you can look it on, on on Amazon. If you don't like Amazon, there's there's loads of other outlets that it's there. You can get it on uh, you know the, the the sort of Kindle version or the the print version. I am doing loads of talks on this, and you know. Um, I would emphasize to all of you, if you want your trust to invite me, uh, you know, very happy to come along. I'm doing stuff in the furthest reaches of the Northeast. I'm going to Scotland. I'm um, I'm going to the Netherlands. I, I'm, I'm obviously going around the Southwest, um, London, the middle, honestly, everywhere. So, and, and, and I'm doing sessions with some of the main training organizations like Ambition and, and Teach First, these sort of people. I'm also doing stuff with individual trusts or groups of uh, teachers. So there's lots of networks across the country. So I just want to get the word out. And I don't have all the answers, Phil, but I just feel like I want to have a journey with people and, and you know, let's get to a better place in a year's time or a few years' time, probably, where where these things are spoken about more freely. And, you know, I feel like social class is almost a bit of a taboo subject in some ways, right? And um, uh, so I hope that this opens this up in a safe way. And, um, you know, I love those joint sessions. The, the real, you know, we were talking about my EF uh, work that I did a few years back now. The real spark, I find, comes when you've got someone like me who's, who's done a lot of the research summaries that synthesize all that research, but then you work with expert practitioners on the front line. And it's that spark that that's what you want. And I think, again, policy, we often we go, to, we go from one extreme to the other. You have practitioners who don't have any research input or knowledge. And then you've got the ivory tower sort of organizations that don't actually interact with the practitioners on the ground. So, so it's that uh, combination, I think, that is really special. Definitely. So thank you again, Lee, for your time. Really, really appreciate it. And uh, hopefully we'll see you in Blackpool soon. Absolutely. Look forward to it. Thank you. Nailers Natter, just talking to teachers. Nailers Natter the book. Ideas and advice from the collective wisdom of teachers. Nailers Natter brings together a wealth of advice from the most influential voices in education today. In this exciting one-of-a-kind book, Phil Naylor revisits the very best interviews from three years of education podcasting, drawing on the advice and opinions from some of the world's most innovative educators. Available now for pre-order from Amazon and out on July 7th, 2022.